Welcome to Dreaming of Home. I'm Gemma Rolls-Bentley, host of this new podcast series launched in conjunction with a group show I curated at the Leslie Lohman Museum of Art in New York City that springboards from Catherine Opie's artwork, Self-Portrait Cutting. The photo, taken in 1993, depicts Cathy Opie from behind, a childlike scene depicting two lesbians holding hands next to a house under the clouds has been cut into her back. The exhibition features 20 of today's most groundbreaking artists reflecting on the rapid and tumultuous shifts experienced by LGBTQIA communities in the 30 years since Cathy's photograph. In the upcoming episodes, I am joined in the search for home by artists from the exhibition and Leslie Lohman Museum art workers as we explore queer people's hope for a happy, healthy future and the restrictions imposed by wider society on our dreams, our relationships, our families and our bodies. Our gorgeous show music is Fantasy Island Obsession by Tom Rasmussen featuring Kai Isaiah Jamal, courtesy of Globetown Records. It's my great pleasure to introduce our two brilliant guests, both artists included in the Dreaming of Home exhibition. Whiskey Chow is a London-based artist, activist and Chinese drag king. Her practice engages with political issues and related topics, from queering masculinity, problematising the nation-state across geographic boundaries, interrogating stereotypical projections of Chinese and Asian identity, to enabling empowerment by queer-reading ancient Chinese myth. Her work is interdisciplinary. Performance, moving image, experimental sound, installation and experimental printmaking. Charmaine Poe is an artist working across media and performance to peel apart, interrogate and hold ideas of agency, repair and the body across worlds. Her current focus, The Young Body Universe, is a series of enactments considering the potentialities of the feminist technobody. She is based between Berlin and Singapore. She's co-founder of long-form magazine JOM and a PhD candidate at the Freie Universität Berlin. Welcome to the show, Whiskey and Charmaine. Hello. Hello, this is Charmaine. This is Whiskey. Hi, I'm happy that you're both here. And I'm so grateful that you both agreed to participate in the Dreaming of Home exhibition. From the conversations that I've had with both of you, I feel like I've learned a lot about the situation for LGBTQIA plus people in both China and Singapore. And I've also gained a deeper understanding of how migration is a key theme within the broader topic of home that the exhibition is exploring, the involuntary displacement and severe conditions that compel people to seek refuge. And with that in mind, I feel like we should acknowledge that for a lot of people, home is a feeling of belonging. It's not necessarily tied to a nation state. And it's that dream of home that runs through the exhibition and also through this podcast series. Charmaine, your work in the show, How They Love, bridges the historic notion of heteronormative marriage in Singapore with the repeal of 377A, a law adopted from British colonial rule that criminalised sex between consenting male adults. In the series, you stage queer Singaporean couples and individuals in scenes of romantic bliss. And there's an image from one of their parents' weddings that's softly projected over the top of them. So I wondered if, to kick us off, you could just tell us a bit more about that project, what your process involved, how the collaborations with the subjects worked, and any changes that you made along the way. And could you also just share your pronouns with us, minor she, her? 
Thank you, Gemma. My pronouns are she, her as well. And this project was made uh, in 2018 and 2019. And at that time in Singapore, terms were very much in flux. Um, people were starting to use non-binary as a casual term uh, within um, queer circles more than before, uh, or sort of more gender fluid terms were being used. And so it was an interesting moment in time to consider what queer individuals thought about themselves, how they perceived their identity, especially in the context of the state. And at that time, sex between men was still considered illegal in Singapore because of a British colonial era uh, penal code, a piece of legislation uh, titled 377A, which stated that men cannot have sex with other men. And so although this wasn't uh, very much acted upon uh, by the police, um, there are other ways in which this piece of legislation had trickled down into society. And this includes things like how people are depicted in mainstream media, ratings for the arts, education, uh, housing policy, uh, obviously couple rights uh, or marriage rights, um, and the list goes on. So I thought it would be interesting to perhaps consider our parents' generation and using a piece of visual culture, in this case, their wedding portraits, many of which were taken in um, a kind of classic style in a, in a studio uh, with the bride carrying a bouquet of flowers, uh, with a veil, and looking very prim and proper, and contrast it with how queer people saw themselves now. And so I brought them into another type of studio space, decorated it with what I thought was kitsch, uh, a kitsch set of props and material, like a veil, like flower petals, uh, like a bow, and to ask them to enact the idea of love or representation. And they could use the props any way they wished, or they could completely discard them. But I wanted to create a space that they were able to use, to play and to imagine a story for themselves. And one of the reasons why I wanted to create this space was because um, for many young people who live with their family, uh, home is not a safe space. Their parents' home is not a safe space. And so they couldn't necessarily rely on that physical space to play and to imagine and to enact worlds. A lot of the time it's about survival and trying to get to the next step in your life. So I thought that this space that was decontextualized from their actual lives uh, could actually allow for more truth than, than going into necessarily their parents' homes um, and other physical spaces that already had a certain history or context behind them. Along the way, I decided to change the title of the work from How She Loves to How They Love, uh, mainly to include more non-binary gender fluid voices and identities, as well as to consider a little bit more 
um, the word they because it's also as opposed to she or he connotes a, an idea of a, of a stranger and someone who is other than you. And I wanted to maybe use these visuals that seem very intimate and contrast it with a title. And the people that I found, I, I found through my own networks or through open calls. And it took a long time. It took two years to finally get people who were willing to be interviewed by me and who trusted me enough to be uh, photographed in this way. And I was open to all sorts of people. Um, I wanted to focus on uh, either female identifying or non-binary voices uh, because I felt that was lacking a lot in that time in terms of really thinking and taking seriously these types of stories and these um, people's internal worlds and sense of interiority. And thankfully, I managed to do it and across uh, a couple of years. So I guess that's the short of it. I don't know whether that was that short, but <laughs> that's my introduction to the work. That's great. It's great to hear from you. I actually had didn't realise it had taken so long for you to f- find the participants for the project. It reminds me a little bit of the book that Joan E. Byron made, Portraits of Lesbians in the 1970s, where she travelled across America photographing lesbians. And similar to what you've described, you know, survival was a key theme for a lot of those subjects. It wasn't necessarily safe to be in a project like that, to be out. There were repercussions. And I think it's a really powerful reminder that we see progress at very different rates when we're looking at queer experience on a global um, scale. And, And also, I would just say as well, the result of that project is so beautiful and moving the way we have it presented within the exhibition. We have 12 prints. And because of that visual language that you described, there is a kind of nostalgia. There's something that feels very familiar um, and it almost kind of invites you in. And then you get to have that kind of closeness to the diverse subjects that you've put in there. You also spoke about you know, kind of world building and allowing your participants to play, be playful in that world. Whiskey, your project in the exhibition also explores world building. You've created a futurist digital realm called You Must Everywhere Wonder, and it imagines a queer masculine bodyscape that fosters cross-cultural communication and healing conversations through CGI and a poetic narrative in an exploration of connections that we forge with the past and through this journey of desire, myth and soulful engagement. I first saw that project of yours in an exhibition at Yorkshire Sculpture Park. And there, as it is in Leslie Lohman, it was a very immersive space that you had created. So I wondered if you could kick us off by just telling us a little bit about the work and really thinking about the journey that you're taking the viewer on. And can you also just introduce your pronouns as well for us? Yes, sure. So basically, I use the pronoun she, her, but it's for a reason, because I don't personally feel that I am connected to womanhood. So for me, use she, her is just my way to confuse the system. I still got, like when I go to the toilet, people might still ask me, remind me that the male toilet is at the other side. So... I kind of just like playing with it. And then also 
My student told me that because I use she, her, making them question the boundary of they, them. Yeah, so that's why I use she, her. And then coming back to the work, you must ever wonder. So the Chinese name is is called Ni Bi Gu Pan. So um, in Cantonese, Ni Bi Gu Pan. So basically, Gu Pan is related to looking around and waiting. And the name just comes to my mind、um, when I building up this fantasy world. When I was、uh, wearing a silicone muscle suit and then trying to embody this masculine queer masculine fantasy, and then working with the digital artist Jin Chan, and then he three D scanned my body by. Uh, digitalizing the body,、um, I got to play with the scale, so that's why the body can become a giant queer body landscape. And thinking about just as、uh, Xiaoming just mentioned that, like home is not the original home is not necessarily a safe space for us. Usually, when we find home, is when we find people. Like we find the lover, we find the friends, we find someone. Can make us feel that we're free. So it's coming from the body, then、uh, making the body become a giant homeland, and also taking the reference from the Asian culture. When our parents doesn't tell us "I love you" every day, they just don't say it. They won't say it. <laughs> they might. They might blame you from for something. Uh, everything、uh, that is part of their love language, but also they will just do it. They will just cook. They'll just spend three hours to cook、uh, nice food for you, and wait for you. And when you arrive home, when you sit at the office of them, they will just look at you very grumpily and say, "Eat," like this kind of vibe. So、uh, I think the cooking in the Asian culture is a token of love. So that's why I、uh, 3D scan the spices using in the Chinese cooking and、uh, making them as part of the landscape, and it's because the spices for me is the symbol of love, and then so those、uh, spices grow from the body landscape, then creating this kind of a land of love and care. So basically, the work itself is to create a home for somebody who doesn't feel they have home. This is the original idea, and also、um, talking about the approach, I might mention it later because、um, it's through a digital workshop during the COVID, and then I think that is related to the migrant identity and. Diaspora identity related to the policy of the country that we are living. Thank you, Whiskey. So you've you've both spoken about your work exploring the future of home for queer Asian diaspora, and there's themes in there around safety and human connection. How would you say a celebration of identity and the history of home? Inspired your takes on the present and future of queerness within the works. Well, I think I'm interested in the idea of being. What does it mean to be? 
what does it mean to be alive as well? And how many cells do we have? And what do they look like within ourselves? So uh, for me, it's this idea that queerness cannot be contained. It cannot be limited to a certain kind of physicality. And home can be interior and exterior as well. For example, for, for in how, how they love, I wanted a certain parts of the studio to look almost like a stage and for them to enact a performance. And so in the photographs, I showed the C-stand or the cloth and it looked almost as though we were all in rehearsal for something. You should see almost the edge of the show. And I wanted to present this idea of always being a work in progress and being beautiful in parts. So, I mean, the, the very real precarity of home continues to, to follow me through. Even in other projects, I did a very simple short film about, and this was in COVID, so I think this idea of precarity was front and center on my mind, about how queer people were trying to find their own family, their own kin, and redefine how they could be together in a safe space. And so I think I'm trying to negotiate often these dialogues between the interior world and the exterior world. For me, uh, thinking about the history, so basically in my practice, one of the approach is to put my queer reading onto the Chinese myths because I think they're extremely queer, but like, people are not tend to read them in that way but at the same time queer people secretly just project their reading onto it because i mean growing up in china in my age uh we didn't see too much queer representation in the mainstream media anyway so um to find space is to queer read things then you can project your fantasy when you're watching even watching Sailor Moon <laughs> so so basically talking about the history I um, I hide three Chinese myths in the video but I want to start from Pan Gu so Pan Gu is basically uh, in the Chinese myth the, the god who created the world because before him the there's no the sky there's no ground it was it was pangu created and separate them for thousands of thousands of years pangu was kind of holding up the sky and then standing and as pangu grow up and grow taller then to create the distance between the sky and the ground then they look at the world there's nothing so they decided to turn their body parts becoming different landscape of the world. For example, their hair become the tree and their blood become the river and the sea and their eyeball becomes the sun and the moon. They become the world and also the world is them, is their body. Uh, so I think this is very beautiful. And then this is also inspiring me to think about can my body become a land to host um, those ones, those marginalized beings. I'm not only talking about queer, those marginalized beings who couldn't find a home to go back to. Uh, moving from Pan Gu, and there's a, there's a character called Ne Zha. 
what happened was that they spent three years and a half in their mother's body. So when they came out, they came out as a huge meatball. And the father was like, this is weird. This, this must got something wrong. I must destroy this. So when he's trying to fight with the meatball, the meatball just broke. And then uh, here comes a child. So it's not a baby. So it's already a, a child. So this father is really worried about this kid. So he found a master to look after this kid and then also teach the kid a little bit of skill and give the kid a little bit of weapon to protect themselves. Uh, one day, Nerja go to the seaside and then they met the son of the Dragon King. So they accidentally kill the dragon. And then so they so happily go back home and then saying that I killed the dragon. The father was uh, so angry and saying that I must kill you now. Otherwise, the dragon king would come to me. You're such a troublemaker. So at that point, Nerja was like, okay, I save you doing the job. I do it myself. And then so that's how Nerja commit the suicide to carve down the uh, flesh and return it to the mother and give back the bones to the father. In our culture, our body is not belonging to ourselves. Our body is given by the parents. The parents will always say that you, you own us. You own us forever because we give you the body. We give you your skin. We give you your hair. And that's that's why like like if Asian kids like doing a tattoo, <laughs> the family will get mad. After the suicide was that um Nerza trying to so their soul is still around, hanging around. So their mother trying to build a temple for them and to just like letting them rest there and then getting some uh, energy from people. But the father went to burn the temple. And then the master was using the lotus root to construct a new body for Nerja for the uh, soul to come back and rest. And that's how Nerja has a new body and that body is basically can avoid the devil spirit. And so I put my queer reading on and I think this is exactly the original family and the chosen family. <laughs> so it's like the original family usually hates you and the uh, chosen family gives you a new life. So I, I was thinking this is also a good way to think about um, the queer body materialization. Because if you think about, can you have a body, can you create a body that goes beyond the biological process? So I think this is de definitely very future. Like, who knows, like, after maybe 50 years, maybe this is not a difficult thing. It's really interesting. I think what you just said there about kind of the contrast between a birth family and a chosen family could also totally apply to Charmaine's work as well. And it's kind of interesting to hear that parallel that you've both kind of used, you've, you've both touched on in your work, which is this kind of notion of something being passed on from your parents or from your family, but then being queered and being reinvented. You know, like with Charmaine, it's like the outdated institution of marriage. And then with whiskey, it's those mythological motifs, the meatball baby and the body part landscapes. 
and taking the bits of those that feel relevant and reimagining them to build something new and forge a new future. I've heard many visitors to the show in New York, particularly US-based people, say how grateful they were to hear from global perspectives within the exhibition and that this wasn't necessarily something they felt they had a lot of experience of. So I wondered, with that in mind, how it feels to be exhibiting your work in this context in New York City and then also in the Leslie Lohman Museum of Art, which is the only museum dedicated to LGBTQIA plus art in the world. Just to jump back to uh, your, both of your points, having grown up in Singapore and whiskey as well, coming from an East Asian context, I think we both feel quite heavily this generational burden that I blame on Confucianism and and how that became something that we almost had to unshackle in order to reimagine something new because it already came with its own set of requirements and demands back into history and consider that tension while enacting something new for, for our lives and for other people's lives. And I think um, showing in New York, it's, it's interesting. I've shown once before in this projected series at the ICP, the International Center of Photography. And it does seem like a bit of a renaissance uh, in cities like New York or London, where you're hearing more perspectives than before. These are cities that were never created to be homogenous in the first place, but I think there seems to be a greater surge now than ever. And so I'm really grateful to hear that people feel held by the works and are still curious about it. And and for me also, showing these types of works, it's extra important that they are shown in a context in which people are not only using it for content, but are actually showing care while curating and dealing with these themes. I don't think any artist wants to be a diversity card or be a token artist in any sort of way. Ultimately, when you make work that is about some kind of marginal experience, you want it to be held with care from its inception to its presentation and its afterlife. And having a space like Leslie Lohman, I think, is important and I'm grateful for the opportunity to show there. Yeah, years later, now having made other projects, I also feel very grateful for the way the project has run around the world in in very careful spaces, also for the safety of people. Yeah, I think for me, it was actually my first time came to the US. So basically is the work and dreaming of home brought me to the US where I was a queer and feminist activist when I was in China. So that was in my early 20s. The LGBT NGO that I was volunteer for is the sister organization with the LA LGBT Center. Knowing that they have a few buildings, they have different departments, they have transgender department, AIDS department, they have a gallery dedicated for 
queer artists, they are doing it very big. I felt that I saw the future. I was just like, okay, I'm going to do your trans uh, be your translator. Anyway, I don't care about my English level, but I would connect you as much as I can with the local community. And then so before they left, they couldn't bring a bottle of water with them. And then they said, Whiskey, can you take this? And then I said, can each of you sign your name on the bottle? And then they said, if you come, promise that you would come to the U.S., come and meet us. And I was like immediately crying. <laughs> and I was like so emotional. Because um, I didn't know, I think that time I was very young and then I don't know about the future. I don't know if I could actually make it. I met a lesbian artist. It's part of, part of the group. She was already teaching in a university. And I was like, can my future be like that? Can I use my work to communicate with the world and to shape the world? It takes 12 years for me to get there, for me to arrive in New York. So I think this is a journey. I kind of just like, I feel that I've become the person I want to become. I think this is the best landing in New York and with the Leslie Loman Museum and surrounding by all those artists, um, no matter it's a peer artist or a more established artist or the artists I always admired, like we are holding the space together and then we are creating another home for the visitors. And I think this is very um, touching. And that's something we've he we've heard a lot actually from a lot of people who visited the show that they do feel held to use your phrase Charmaine by the exhibition you know on the museum told me when I was there last week that on the opening night they reckon we had 2000 people through the door which is just wild and whenever I've been in the gallery spaces it's been full of really like intergenerational visitors and I remember, Whiskey, when you and I first discussed this show when we were teaching together at the Royal College of Art and you said to me that you thought a show like this could be life-changing. And at the time, I felt kind of intimidated in my curatorial role by that idea. But it's been so amazing to see the response and to see how people have really engaged with the exhibition um, in a very meaningful way. And, you know, I think you, Whiskey, you mentioned it just then, but the work that you are both making absolutely has an activist component. You know, I think that really comes across in the work that's being presented at this show. You are, I believe, changing the world by making this work and putting it out there into a public space. I wondered if you, Whiskey, can you just tell us what you've got coming up next? I actually... I actually have another show um, opening in New York very soon. So I think I, I was just like, oh, New York is calling. So it's a show in Eli Klein Gallery. It's a show named In Directions, Queerness in Chinese 
contemporary photography. I'm showing work alongside the other Chinese queer artists. The work is the one I never released. So it's a documentation of the performance as well as the prank that I made from the performance. And the other thing is I, I curate a exhibition. Um, so that would be in the UK in the art house in Wakefield. It's a queer sculpture show. Uh, it's called Soft and Hard Beyond Recognition and Queer Coding. So it's basically looking into how the younger generation queer artists exploring the materiality and also bringing their own concern into their art making, creating the work that is not affirming the stereotype of the traditional queer art. Can the artists invent a new language by themselves in, uh, under this umbrella of queer art? This one would be next year, um, January to March. Yeah, but also I'm looking forward to bring back my um, curatorial practice. It's called Querying Now. So it's basically, um, it's me creating this uh, platform for Chinese and Asian queer diaspora artists in the West to create a space that can go beyond the institutional gaze and white gaze, to create a space for them to play to not having to perform the identity. Um, so hopefully, uh, Queering Now 2024 could happen. So you have lots coming up. So Queering Now, that's in Wakefield, which is in Yorkshire in the north of England, which is very exciting. And Charmaine, what do you have coming up? I actually just finished a performance lecture and uh, opened an exhibition at the Singapore Museum. And this was around the same time as the Leslie Lohman opening. Um, and so I, I hope to bring the, the performance lecture somewhere because it's quite an ambitious work, probably my most ambitious yet. It includes liveness and video, uh, movement, sound, um, the works. So I would like to see where it can go um, and letting it germinate for now. Um, and I'm working on the second part of Kin, that short film that I mentioned earlier, that's about safe spaces and finding queer kinship. So I'm working on part two of that, and it'll be shown on a Benali next year. And I'm excited about that too, so hopefully I'll go back to Singapore in January to shoot um, and kind of seeing whether I can speak with queer parents or parents-to-be. And it's a it's a different ballgame because when you bring in children, I think um, there's there's a lot of fear because there are real consequences. Um, children might get bullied, they might be discriminated against. And so these are very real contentious topics that are important to look at, especially now um, when, well, in Singapore, we're starting to really consider what family means. The nuclear family is very much um, part of almost as the heartbeat of a lot of policy making in Singapore and what happens when we look at that. Um, how can we look at that? So I, I think it's an important time. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll see how things go from here. I couldn't agree more. And as a 
queer parent, that's something that I'm thinking about myself a lot. And I also should shout out episode one of this series is called Raising Queer Families. And that's very much what we're looking at in that episode as well. So my final question for both of you that I ask all of our podcast guests, what is your dream of home? Can you close us out with your dream of home? Okay, I guess dreaming of home for me is, I would still say body or people, but the body could be the lover's body, could be um, your friend's body, right? So it's it's the people. It's always the people. It reminds me of many years ago when I chat with my queer friend and then we talk about this kind of uh, queer despair. And it's because the queer despair driving us forward and a lot of queer people become a high achiever is because of the queer despair. I guess sometimes it's thinking about now, thinking about the world, thinking about the different timeline that we are living in. Of course, some of the country has better policy or more tolerant environment. But some of the other countries still, people can, people can die because they're gay. I appreciate the people surrounding me, but I also have a bigger dream. And because uh, when um, Dreaming of Home opened, I come to New York and stay for 13 days. And then kind of is boring a bit and go to the legendary lesbian bar, the Cubby Hole. So I think um, this global queer family is being building up and my work bring me to this home bring me to this new home bring me to meet these new people life is life life's still quite difficult sometimes but because of these people because those moments you feel that your pain has been paid off connection with other queers and their bodies as an antidote to queer despair, particularly found at the Cubby Hole, my favourite lesbian bar in New York City. Love that shout out. Charmaine, what about you? What is your dream of home? Uh, I've been on and off listening to meditation. And I think in several Eastern philosophies, whether Taoism or Buddhism, there's a kind of sensibility um, of a flow state or um, of of an expansiveness of the self that is home not just because of our backgrounds or our present circumstance but also a connectedness to this larger universe and in this state of awareness uh, and compassion to oneself um, there's home because in that state there's also rest, there's play, imagination, contentment, um, forgiveness, and it doesn't end in some kind of foreclosure but keeps opening up ways of being. I think that's a sensibility or kind of intuition that that makes me feel like that's what home is for us and this is this is across sexualities and cultures and backgrounds because for me for example i live in berlin and it's almost the opposite of singapore in many ways 
and yet there are tensions here that will not surface in Singapore in terms of sometimes the type of danger that is in here you don't see back in Singapore and, and the kind of uh, level of pressure you see back in Singapore you don't see here so it, it's hard to compare um, physical physical environments um, so I'm trying to find it from from this sort of interior life yeah I think that's what I have for now that's what keeps me going yeah no thank you for such a beautiful answer it's lovely to think about that queer expansiveness being available to us all wherever we are whenever thank you both so much for being on the podcast with me and thank you for such beautiful answers and for sharing so much with us about your work and about your experiences and your thoughts thank you thank you so much this episode is brought to you by the Leslie Lohman Museum of Art. Dreaming of Home is on view September 7th till January 7th, 2024. Learn more about the show at lesliloman.org. Join us for the next episode in this series where we ask, where can we feel at home? In our skin, in each other's embrace, amongst our chosen families. Where are our queer and trans bodies safe, housed and free to be themselves? I'm Gemma Rolls-Bentley, and this is Dreaming of Home. The show music is Fantasy Island Obsession. Written and performed by friend of the podcast, Tom Rasmussen, featuring Kai Isaiah Jamal.